G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. Though we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or iTunes um, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Um, we got one sort of recently earlier in, in March from Candy Floss Goth. Uh, so as a student but no, so I'm loving this podcast series, it's a nice way to have a break from normal methods of studying whilst I'm learning new information, tips and tricks. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Thank you very much for that. Um, and uh, hopefully uh, it will inspire some of you out there to uh, to write us a review as well. Because really what happens, it helps the metrics um, to, to make sure that this sort of podcast um, is accessible to the to the people that that, uh, um, that want to listen to it. Anyway, so well, today um, uh, we, so that's right, Brian is on the whistles and faders today, which is good news for all of us, so don't have to try and uh, manage that as well. Now I'm going to talk to Anka Hendricks, so one of our senior lecturers here in dermatology uh, at the RVC. So many thanks, Anka, for joining us uh, today. Um, and we're going to have a, a, a brief conversation, obviously, on the, on the small topic <laughs> of managing ear disease in dogs. So thank you, Anka, for joining us. Thanks, Dom. <laughs> so maybe um, a place to start. Um, obviously, uh, um, you know, all, all dogs um, ten, you know, can, can get ear disease. But I suppose, are there certain breeds of dogs that you're um, more uh, cognizant of or your spider sense works that you, you get a bit more concerned or, or as a dermatologist all breeds are, are the same regarding ear disease? I think we do see some differences um, here there are uh, if we look at our, our caseload in, in, our, in our clinic here and that uh, that would be the caseload of the dermatology service and the cases that uh, we diagnose with ear, ear disease are, are two types. They're the sort of skin disease dogs that will also happen to have ear disease, but also there are, of course, animals that have been referred to us specifically for ear disease. So if we look at all of those together, um, the, the, the top types of dogs um, in terms of numbers um, are spaniels and labradors, um, and the different types of spaniels um, uh, in particular. They're even more numerous than the labradors. Now, that obviously is also impacted on by our demographic and the types of dogs that are being kept in the sort of greater London area or a bit further afield so that that population might be different elsewhere but what that probably reflects is a a couple of things Um, dogs that get ear disease easily and often and often recurrently and often lifelong are dogs that have allergic type skin diseases because those uh, very often affect the ears as well. There's been some nice data done that's looked at this to see that at least 50% of dogs with atopic dermatitis will have atopic otitis as part of their problem. But that figure changes within breeds. We see that the presentation of atopic dermatitis varies between breeds and so does how important ear disease is with it. So basically, if you think about which dogs get ear disease, basically it's all the dogs that also get allergic skin diseases. So they're at risk. So that's probably responsible for the Labradors, in addition to that being quite a common breed anyway. Um, the Spaniels, there is a proportion of them who also have allergic skin disease, but that group of dogs seems to have an ad- some sort of additional factor that predisposes them to, to, to ear disease, which is not necessarily linked with allergic skin disease. They just seem to do ear disease really well. And there are various um, hypotheses as to why that might be. There are investigations that look at the fact that they have a higher density of, of uh, sebaceous glands and, and, and earwax glands in their ear canals and all sorts of things. There's the floppy ear theory, the hairy ear theory. Um, 
in truth, we're not really quite sure. I think it's a spaniel theory, really. It's, it's probably multiple things that come together that um, means that these dogs um, probably have conformational and other factors that predispose them to ear infections. Um, but of course, for any individual dog, one also has to always look at the other reasons like primary inflammatory allergic ear disease that might come together to try and manage this. But there are then also some types of dogs that... Um, probably have mainly a conformational predisposition they're not that common that'll be the sharpies well i suppose actually they are getting more common because the french bulldog would be on that list i still haven't quite adjusted to the fact that we're seeing so many of them um the french bulldog has is really high on the list for allergic skin disease that's a problem and then often they have relatively narrow occluded ear canals um, so when they do get inflamed ears, very often the swelling that occurs very quickly leads to functional stenosis and all the complications of that. So they, when they do get ear disease, they really get it badly quickly, if you see what I mean. And also other bulldogs, English bulldogs, often have very narrow um, openings of the ear canals. Um, so these are all factors that make um, create probably create... Um, an environment that microbes like makes it hard to examine the ears and makes it hard to apply medication and remove discharge efficiently. Um, but I suppose in terms of numbers, really, the, the spaniels and the allergic type dogs really top the list. So could it be that it's not it's not as like the floppy ear theory? Maybe that's what I was uh, maybe told when I was <laughs> at, at uni. But it's if if yeah. the ears are just a manifestation of a, you know more uh, sorry a, a type of area where this where their skin, but it's a bit hotter and a bit more humid. <clears throat> would that be would that be fair? Yeah, so, it's it's I I look at it the the ear a bit like like the space between toes, the interdigital skin. It's mm. it's an area where um, th- there are is probably a special microclimate. Um, the reason that may or may not not tie to floppy ears is there's actually one investigation that's wanted to look at this to say well actually is a a, a pendulous pinna is a floppy ear does that create a moister hotter environment in the ear canal might that explain why spaniel type dogs for instance get otitis they measured the humidity the humidity differs slightly at the first centimeter or so of the ear canal but if you actually measure deeper down um, there's not much difference whether you have an erect ear or not so it's quite a stable climate if you like down there um, some of the floppy ear dogs, probably the way the ear folds and occludes the ear can, can sometimes functionally close that off even more. So that's perhaps a slightly different scenario. Um, but overall, the ear canal is a, is, a, is a warmer, more moisture environment, a bit like other intertriginous areas and between the toes, for instance, or in the groin. And these are all areas that have higher populations of microbes of commensals such as malassezia and staphylococci uh, than elsewhere on the body and so then when that environment changes further um, when skin barrier doesn't work so well when humidity temperature increases further then those microbes um, can multiply more so we have a higher load and so this the, the that threshold into microbial overgrowth and then into tissue invasion and infection um, is is that much lower at those sites. So in many ways, really, ear disease is similar to pododermatitis um, conceptually, and it helps to think about it like that. So are you more concerned about the, or not concerned, I suppose, but does the segment give you more info than the lifestyle, or is lifestyle just the odd opportunistic thing? So I was thinking about dogs that go swimming or, or working dogs that may be in 
in fields or running through you know yeah. brooks and streams <clears throat> or is that is that just you know the occasional um... it's an interesting thing we've had a, a debate about that um, amongst various dermatologists not too long ago the whole swimming labrador uh, question um i think it is You can't deny that there are cases of dogs that haven't really had much of a history of ear disease before and they present with acute otitis after some swimming events. If you think about the sheer numbers of dogs though, particularly Labrador spandily type things that really seek out water and are in contact with water a lot of the time, that's not that altogether that common. You'd kind of expect them all to be having otitis all the time. Mm. (laughs) Uh, and, And they're not. So what I'm wondering really and and that's you know a view shared by by certainly some of my colleagues who took part in the discussion is whether or not those are dogs that already have one or two predisposing factors for ear disease anyway and then the uh, additional maceration through prolonged uh, filling of the ear canal with water for instance just tips that over the edge Um, that's probably my you know my preferred view at this point in time but but you know in truth we're not we're not sure nobody's really looked at the prevalence of ear disease in dogs in the same breed uh, with or without the same skin disease that do go swimming versus don't go swimming fair enough and it's probably quite a complicated question because mm. it's associated with water mm. as you said you know going through puddles or things yeah from dogs that actively go to the beach or exactly. things like that a bit a bit different <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, so what would be, uh, I suppose it's probably more your your first line approach or approach that you'd recommend, because I mentioned most of the cases that, that, that we see here have, have had some, some treatment anyway, but what would be your, your first line uh, approach to um, probably examining the ear um, and whether you say uh, have a have a look first or put a swab in to have a look at the um, you know, to see whether there's any bacteria or the, the, the cells um, or malassezia that's in the ear, or could you, could you just maybe briefly describe your general approach to uh, examining the ear? Um, it's interesting when you start thinking about what you actually do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, I would pay attention to any signs of of inflammation and discharge of the you know outer ear on, on, on gross inspection, and then would would try to see um, what and what kind of discharge and how much of it I've I've got in the ear. Um, we tend to, I tend to regularly do cytology on ear discharge to get an idea of the type of infection involved. And also, uh, for those dogs where the ear is very inflamed, maybe maybe very itchy, and you've got you know a bit more brown discharge there, cerumen there, than than perhaps normal, and you're not quite sure whether there's actually an ear infection, whether this is actually a microbial problem contributing to this inflammation and discomfort, or whether this is simply a flare-up of allergic inflammation. And um, these two things can't necessarily be teased apart unless you take a a sample from the ear smear it out and look at it and if I just see squames and no microbes and uh, then then this is clearly just an allergically inflamed ear and therefore treatment for that would just um, you know target this and antimicrobials aren't needed so in terms of prudent use of antimicrobials that is a you know, is an important step to do, particularly in an animal that actually knowingly has allergic skin disease elsewhere. So when the ears flare up, the first thing is to check whether it's actually an infection or not. Uh, to be to be fair, most dogs, of course, when owners present present them for a flare up, do at this point in time already have an infection. 
uh, present, um, least of all because owners often sit it out for a little while before they come to see you. Um, so I think it's important to to um, establish at which stage, you know, are you seeing an acute infection, which is most likely to be a, a malassezia or staphylococcal infection, as opposed to a recurrent chronic late stage presentation, at which point a shift to gram negatives is much more likely. Um, so, you know, an early presentation which is not very dramatic, you probably don't need to do too much in terms of further testing and the first line topical treatment once the ear canal is reasonably clear of material is probably all that's required and, and you know, you've resolved the infection and that's the end of that story. Um, where there isn't response as, as uh, expected or as I say there's you know this dog's known to have recurrent ear infections um, you probably need to look a little bit more closely I would look more closely at what the situation is it is my experience that when uh, recurrent otitis is reported or evident from the animal's history um, it's not actually always a recurrence of a new episode. It may be flares of an ongoing otitis that's happening. So basically, when the animal is good or the ears are good, in inverted commas, um, it still has a low-grade infection and inflammation going on, but it's tolerable. And by the sort of reference point of the owner, that that is normal. And then when when the owner reports a recurrence, that's actually a flare and exacerbation of an existing or a change of the existing infection. And that's important because um, that means that you've got to be very very much more vigilant in a terms of diagnosing what microbes are involved, ensuring that treatment is actually carried out um, as intended. Um, and also that the end point of treatment is reached before the treatment is discontinued. The temptation is by owners, but also by ourselves, when there seems to be a vast clinical improvement to back to normal, to just stop treatment. Very often an ear is clinically normal way before it's microbially normal. Um, and the treatment endpoint has to be to have restored the previous normal microbial situation, which is basically on cytology, virtually no microorganisms seen before I would consider discontinuation. Can I, can I just ask, so, so when you put a swab down um, the ear canal, so for a, a normal dog, whatever whatever mm. normal is, but say would a couple of uh, um, malassezia yeast be normal per high power field and a couple of cocci on squames but not in, in white <coughs> blood cells? Is there, is there a number that you you're you you would shrug and and, and you're not interested in mm. um in medicating with any any antimicrobial that's a really interesting question because um th this is it's a very it's a difficult area there are publications out there quite a few who will use for research purposes or other purposes and even recommendations about certain you know number thresholds whatever five yeasts per higher power field and so forth this methodology is actually not really validated and if you think about how you sample an ear, how you smear out that sample from a swab, how thick the smear is, how many areas on a really unevenly spread set of material on a slide you'll be looking at, um, which, you know, which high power fields you're looking at, um, it, it, it becomes clear that, that a proper quantitative approach can't can't be possible with that kind of technology really you know you'd have to take in a defined amount of material and 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 smear it out and culture it in quantitative methods to really get an idea about population density that is not required for for clinical practice um um 
most normal uninflamed ears would have very few, if any, yeasts if you check a few high-power fields, you know. And in my head, that's really all I go by. Very few, if any, is my category. <laughs> then some, and then quite a few, and absolutely huging. I mean, that's clearly not a scientific terms, but that's the sort of categories I would work in. Um, so... Then there is a slide taking into consideration some of the breeds that really like to have malassezias in higher number. Um, so, for instance, basset hounds, um, spinones, um, anything slobbery, floppy-eared. Newfoundlands? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, poodles, exactly, hairy ears, uh, some of the spaniels. If the ear canal is grossly uninflamed, and I find three yeasts in a high-power field consistently that's probably not relevant <clears throat> if i've got an inflamed ear and i find three yeasts in a high power field in a spaniel that may st these yeasts may still not be relevant for the inflammation in that spaniel because that might represent a normal population number for that breed which is not involved and clinically relevant but i don't necessarily know that for this individual animal. So what I may have to do is reduce that number further. So I would give antifungals until we're back to seeing basically none. And along with that, I would expect the inflammation to resolve if those yeasts had actually been involved in this process. If I see no clinical improvement, no reduction in inflammation, even though I've wiped the yeasts out, then those yeasts were probably not relevant at that point in time, and the reason for inflammation is another one. So this is basically a diagnostic step. It's real trial treatment for diagnostic purposes. It's a five-step approach to determine how relevant microbial populations are. So you've got to have inflamed skin lesions, you've got to have a high number or what we consider a higher than completely, definitely normal number of microbes uh, together, diagnose that. Then you've got to wipe out the microbial population down to levels where you don't see them anymore. And then you've got to assess whether along with that successful reduction in population, you get a reduction in the inflammation and the lesions. And only when that happens have you established that causal relationship. Um, so, it you know, there are cases when, you know, I'd be stroking my non-existing beard uh, to, to wonder in this particular particular dog I'm seeing 10 yeasts per hair power feed it is a basset hound um, he's got very slightly red ears do I need to do anything about it and the owners aren't reporting any 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 uh, uh, pruritus or any self-trauma to the ear and being slightly of the conservative general nature in my practicing I might just say well you know what no we'll just leave that we'll observe there might be cases when you might not want to risk this, etc. You know, it's a very individual judgment thing for the case, the scenario, the owners, the dog. But it's a situation where I don't think treatment is mandatory. Other situations, it might be quite clear. If I saw a greyhound with massive numbers of yeasts and a red ear canal, um, absolutely, of course, you want to treat it because it's very unlikely to be a normal population and or any other inflammatory skin disease. So it's a bit difficult sometimes. Yeah, well, I think that's kind of like the art of, uh, of veterinary science, isn't it, or mm. veterinary medicine. Um, so canals, when, when you're having a look at, so obviously you examine the ear canal uh, um, just visually, externally, you can see whether there's um, and maybe any hypertrophy of the skin, etc. Um, and when you look with, a, with an otis Escape and obviously sometimes these ears can be uh, have a have a lot of accumulation of, of, of material that might make it hard to see the uh, the ear canal and also the tympanic membrane and and do you are you do you always want to see the tympanic membrane or do you try and clean out the ear as best you as best you can and then have a look or, or 
or do you um or, or do you sort of start treatment without cleaning out the ear canal i suppose maybe this is a a visualization of the tympanic membrane question and also your thoughts on on generally cleaning the the ear canal if there's a, a lot of uh, material in there um, it's probably easier to start with the second part of the, the question. So when there is a lot of discharge in the ear canal, <clears throat> particularly when that discharge is, is pus and you know, very or, or just even l large amounts of really sticky, greasy discharge full of malassezia, um, you are less likely to successfully treat that infection if you leave that discharge in simply because um, two things happen. You are diluting your topical ear medication in lots of you know, a volume of other material, so you don't end up with a concentration that, that you need potentially. And also some of the antimicrobials are inactivated by proteinaceous debris, such as polymyxin B, for instance, in Suralan and, and similar products. So y y you need to remove that for, for that reason. Um, also, of course, um, by physically removing um, the vast number of microbes, uh, you're making it an awful lot easier for your topical treatment to, to take effect quickly. But also, really, your topical needs to go uh, needs to be in contact with the surface of the ear canal directly because that is the interface. That's where the where the actual tissue infection happens when you're using a topical only. Um, and so um, to to remove this to really um, be effective in your treatment is is really um, important. But of course, you have situations. We actually had a dog yesterday, or no Monday, where um, there is. The ear canal is relatively clean and patent, but at the very end you have a, an accumulation of dark material which you can't get out, you can't get access to in the dog conscious. You've got an elevated number of yeasts there, so you want to use treatment. Uh, you can't really see the eardrum, so all of those things together, and you've got to make the judgment call. Um, based on a rel you know a, a, a volume of discharge which is relatively little so my topicals will access most of the ear canal based on the fact that you know we would really need deep sedation in this particular patient or a general anesthetic even to try and clear this out and the fact that this is um, you know in terms of the whole history the dogs unlikely to have a defective uh, tympanic membrane just based on the risk assessment in terms of duration of ear disease etc etc um, you know I would just go ahead and treat and see where we are I might sometimes if I'm not cleaning out an ear canal um, uh, in in my consult I might sometimes ask the owners to do a, a three to five day home cleaning phase with a an ear cleaner before starting an antimicrobial topically in the ear. So the idea being that I'm trying to give them an opportunity to remove as much of the discharge through repeated use of an ear cleaner at home, and only then will I start with an, a, a topical. I tell the owners what to expect. I'll say on day one or two of using this, you won't get much material out. But as the ear cleaner sort of sits in the ear canal, macerates, softens the material, on day three or four, you'll get stuff coming out. And by day five, no longer because you've removed a lot of it and that's when you start using the topicals that's one way around this so there are certainly situations when we're using um, uh, topical drugs that uh, are contraindicated in the face of defective tympanic membranes when we can't see them but it's a risk assessment if i have a dog who's had a six months or more history of pseudomonas infection already going on we know from some case series that they, there is at least a 50 percent chance that their dog's got middle ear involvement and some sort of 
you know, potential, particularly if there's an ulcerated ear canal. Now, that ulceration is unlikely just to affect the lining of the ear canal. It's likely to also affect the tympanic membrane itself deeper down. So that's a high-risk scenario for a defective eardrum if I can't see it. So I would probably not use those products in those scenarios. It's really a risk assessment and in discussion with the owners how, how much risk they're accepting in using a product. In and this it, scenario, and is your your first line so treatment anchor one of one of the you know the the, the topical ointments that uh, um, have a bit of polymyxin B and uh, um, and. a bit of steroids as as well or um yeah absolutely so you know in the uk the the the, if we've got a a, you know let's say we've got a a, the situation is unambiguous there is infection in the air canal then we only really have uh, licensed products that are polypharmaceuticals so they contain an antifungal and antibiotic and uh, and a steroid i think the one product that didn't contain a steroid is no longer on the market um so you know, those are licensed for those indications, so that should must be our first go-to products. Um, and then I will choose the product based on the type of infection present. Um, and the first-line treatments, you know, would would be drugs that will be effective against um, Staphylococcus um, uh, if it's a bacterial infection. Um, most of those products, uh, actually all of those products, have activity against some of the gram negatives as well, but some more than others. Azernia, for instance, is has not particularly good against Pseudomonas, and you'll see that reflected in the data sheet. So if I see loads of rods, um, that might not be my first go-to product. If I see cocci, it is. Um, all of those products are pretty good um, for yeast infections. How do you select between them? Well. I think, first of all, antimicrobial stewardship comes in a little bit. If I've got a staphylococcal or yeast infection, I do not need a product that contains a fluoroquinolone. They should, in my view, be reserved for situations where you really need those products. So I will go and look at the, um, you know, what antibiotic my product contains, and I will not go for the ones that contain a fluoroquinolone, but the others, because they should absolutely suffice. Particularly in a yeast infection, frankly, I don't need an antibiotic at all, but I haven't got a choice because they're all polypharmaceuticals. Um, so that's how, you know, that would be my first line of choice. And then there are, of course, factors such as ease of application, whether or not the animal can be medicated at home or not. And so we now have, a, you know, products that make this sort of thing easier in terms of just once daily application or actually just once weekly application at the vets. Um, so that really helps us in situations where previously um, the uh, uh, issues around uh, adherence to treatment regimes were the stumbling block to resolving infections. So that's really good news. Um, So there isn't one, there's probably three first-line products because they don't contain fluoroquinolones unless you really need them. And then, you know, there are various factors that go into the selection of those products. It's, It's really worthwhile thinking about not just changing randomly or picking one randomly or thinking about those products in terms of a potent versus a weak one doesn't really exist it's just that their efficacy spectrum is different and we should perhaps be more prudently using some of the antimicrobials than the others and is, is there a length of time anchor when you when you give a first line you know therapy so say a naive dog that hasn't had uh, any otitis externa before that you expect things to be improving such as if they've 
um, uh, you know, followed your instructions and, and cleaned out the year to a certain point, so we believe that the medication to be effective. How how long do you do you suggest that they continue that that treatment for, or would that de- depend on your reevaluation of them? Um, well, ideally, yeah. Well, the first point of call really is the data sheet because, interestingly, if you compare the the, the conditions for authorization, if you like, the way this product is meant to be used, there's huge differences here. There are there's a product, uh, Exotic, for instance, that's uh, you know it, it's a five day treatment. That's it. And uh, if you look at the, the the data behind the the that particular authorization, it's sort of clear why that was chosen. But that's a short period of time. Um, you know, we know that some of the products like Exotic and others, um, it's been shown that they do actually, they are actually effective for a number of days beyond the last application. So when you give these for five days, you're probably getting a seven day uh, effect, for instance, or even a little bit more than that, only if you're not using ear cleaners, of course, because otherwise you're cleaning it out. Um, but um, but it is a short period of time sometimes on those licenses. Um, I would personally really like to see um, the animal back and make sure that what the owner perceives to be a massive clinical improvement in a relatively short period of time actually matches the clinical situation. In a first line simple otitis, you know, a prevalent otitis in a dog with no history, predisposition, etc., probably around about a week's worth of effectiveness is probably okay. And, um, you know, if everything's resolved, you may not need to see the animal again. Anything beyond that I think it'd be good if the, the veterinarian was able to establish the treatment endpoint and, and reassess. For any dogs that have taken, they're not really progressing within the speed that you expect, or there are other things I would definitely want to look down that ear again and take another swab if the ear looks okay to see whether we've actually eliminated the infection. And I have to say, in most cases, it's not the choice of drug that's responsible for, let's say, slow progress or non-response. It is the fact that actually the medication isn't effectively getting to where the infection is for a number of uh, reasons. And those are uh, uh, those relate to the medication being administered in terms of quantity, frequency, correctness, uh, place. I mean, we've had eardrops supposedly applied to ears that haven't got ear canal openings anymore, um, et cetera, et cetera. But also with regard to the amounts used, some of the products can be really difficult to work out how much people are putting in. Three drops in a Great Dane's ear canal isn't going to go very far and deep. So um, often, uh, or we've got enough excess material discharge still there, so we're diluting the, the drops. So often there are lots of other factors that prevent the medication from being effective as opposed to it being the wrong choice of treatment. And and so, when do you consider uh, culturing um, ears? So, when, so how how you know, if you've given a therapy and you're still seeing bacteria down there, do you consider that might be um, that something else is going on, or maybe the treatment that you've insti- instigated might not be um, appropriate for the flora that's there? Um, I suppose the. Um because we're seeing, definitely seeing more cases of uh, multi-resistant organisms, those would be the methicillin-resistant staphylococci, uh, MRSP in particular in the ears, uh, and of course also later on the, the, the various pseudomonas um, strains in the ear that develop um, resistance quite quickly. Um, it, it, 
And also for infection control purposes, if you've got an ear like that, it is useful to demonstrate that that is happening. An interesting point is that when we run um, in vitro susceptibility tests, then the cutoff points um, that we use to determine uh, susceptibility versus uh, uh, resistance um, are really geared towards the concentration of this particular drug that's achieved systemically for those drugs that are also available systemically. Um, so what that means is that if I get a strain of something that says it's resistant to enrofloxacin, let's say, that, 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 that means that if I gave enrofloxacin at the licensed dose of 5 mg per kg, it's unlikely to be effective um, given systemically. However, when we give these drugs topically, um, we can exceed those drug concentrations by thousandfold. Um, so we may actually still be still be effective. In fact, if I see a culture result of, let's say, a, um, a pseudomonas strain in an ear that comes back as resistant on my in vitro susceptibility testing to uh, enrofloxacin, my first line treatment for this will still be a fluoroquinolone topically, despite this. I did a little study where we tried to work out whether there's a different, whether the odds of uh, of response of the infection to a treatment were different if I selected um, the topical antimicrobial based on the susceptibility profile or not in case of pseudomonas otitis. Um, and it's, I'd, I'd need to repeat this with more cases. It wasn't that powerful. But basically on the study that I did on about 50 or so years, um, there was no difference in the, in the odds of response and resolution of the infection. Even if I, tr in, in resistant strains, if, even if I chose the, the fluoroquinolone that was um, supposedly that the uh, pseudomonas were supposedly uh, resistant to on in vitro testing. So um, the, the, the basically the um, relationship between in vitro susceptibility for a surface infection when you're using topical medications is not that predictive of outcome. But for other reasons it can be useful. Sometimes you know, we can't exceed the concentrations that would be required, and we would just that we can be guided in terms of our selection of the drug um, uh, by those tests. I'd want to know if, if a resistant Staphylococcus, even if I can kill it topically, I would want to know if this is an, uh, an MRSP or an MRSAA for infection control and other reasons, for instance. So there are multiple reasons as to why we would want to culture. But um, a very important diagnostic test really is cytology over culture because that is my treatment guidance, my treatment outcome assessment method in many ways. If cytologically a previous pseudomonas infection is now bug negative, so I can't see rods anymore, um, uh, culture is a more sensitive way of demonstrating I would then submit a culture to see whether we've truly eliminated the population of that particular population of uh, bacteria or not. But it's cytology that guides it so when you're when you're looking at cytology you, i mean it's really to differentiate cocci and, and rods is that to, is that, it's, is that it's, right it's cocci and rods um the inflammatory cell component and whether or not we've got any mi um, uh, uh, microbes so picture situations that we sometimes see we might have uh, an ear infection with a bacterium or even yeasts um or or, or gram negatives gram positives doesn't matter really we're we using an appropriate um, topical treatment product and we're treating this for two weeks let's say um, and the owner comes back and says oh it's still sore and it's still pussy and you look at the ear and yes it's sore and yes it's pussy one possible explanation for this is that the product's been effective the infection has been 
resolved, but I now have a contact, an adverse reaction to the product. So I have a contact dermatitis, which in clinical terms looks and feels just the same. Um, and the only way I can pick that up, which means really stop that medication now, don't continue or swap to another with similar ingredients, is by running cytology, and in which case I might see loads of neutrophils, but not a single bug, for instance. So um, that's not that, that uncommon. So cytology is really crucial to identify what type of infection and to follow its progress. If a red ear, a red itchy ear persists, but my microbial numbers have dropped to next to zero, then the diagnosis for that ear is marked allergic otitis and it needs different treatment. It does not need antimicrobials anymore. And without cytology, that cause very hard to make. And so judging what you said before about culture results often having a concentration of uh, a systemic concentration of that antimicrobial reaching sort of levels in the in the tissue um do, do you ever do you ever give systemic antimicrobials anti-mi- <laughs> or antifungal agents with uh, um, <clears throat> with say otitis um for otitis externa um sometimes is the answer um mainstay of treatment is topical wherever possible um we don't really have a, a lot of um, clinical data on the effectiveness of any treatment modality, really, for specific types of otitis, which is a great shame. Uh, all the tr- clinical trials that are, that are run for sort of licensing purposes, sponsored by uh, companies who market products or then want to market products, don't tend to differentiate between different types of otitis and etc. So it's very hard to, to reach conclusions as to how effective any particular product or ingredient, systemically or topically, might be to a particular type of infection in the ear. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a mess, really. Um, there is really only one case series, for instance, that, which I think is really interesting from the 1990s in France, where um, a colleague ha- took uh, loads of dogs with Pseudomonas otitis externa, and all these Pseudomonas strains were in vitro susceptible to marbofloxacin at the start of treatment. And he treated those dogs, 50-odd dogs, um, with oral marbofloxacin only no topical treatment. But he used that, he, the, the dose of marbofloxacin was more than double that, that that's licensed in the UK. So this is five milligrams per kilogram um, dog. And he treated them for, I think, uh, outcome assessment points, three weeks and six, six weeks um, down the line. Um, 16% of dogs cleared the infection by six weeks down the line. 16, 1-6% of dogs cleared the infection on clinical grounds and he did not submit follow-up cytology or cultures to, to double-check on that. So the chances of treating a dog successfully with oral antibiotics alone at twice the licensed dose with a strain that is <laughs> that is susceptible on in vitro testing a priori um, aren't great and there's multiple reasons as to why that is the case so um, sometimes we have to choose this kind of treatment but when we do I absolutely overdose on fluoroquinolones in this sort of situation or uh, any other drugs I will really want to at least physically clean that ear canal once so that the load of microbes is out of that canal and the systemic only has to treat what's left on the interface because obviously it can't penetrate into non-vascularized material so under certain circumstances, yes, I will do this. For but by and large, not really. And every time I've had to do this in in really chronic cases, I have to say, in line with these study experiences, the outcome hasn't been particularly positive. The situation is a bit different for yeasts. 
Um, for some reason, systemic treatment can work better there. And I have no good data. There's one paper only that's looked at uh, the use of uh, itraconazole systemically in a certain fashion as a pulse treatment for, for ear disease. And that actually wasn't that positive in terms of outcome, but that's con in contrast with my clinical experience of seeing good response in certain situations. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I suppose you're like touching on certain things because we're you know looking at um, these conditions that might have some chronicity to it or, or some pain associated with with uh, um, with the with the ears as well. well do, do you have any go to phrases or stock phrases to get owners on board for compliance? Because I imagine that a lot of our success is is really their success of of treating um, their their pet their dog. Um, successfully, you know, managing the everyday sort of sort of therapy. Do you, do you how do you, how do you get people on board to um, to carry out what you um, what you suggest? I don't think I see many owners who aren't in principle on board, mm. and they, they they by and large they see the necessity and and all of this. I think there are lots of obstacles, obstacles though, for owners to successfully do this that have nothing to do with their intention, which I actually is the reason why I don't particularly fancy the term compliance, even though that is technically the correct term, because most people, I've, I ask my students every week, well, how, what, what do you think when you think compliance or somebody isn't compliant? And they all kind of go, ooh, you know, there's a negative connotation here, somebody doesn't want to do or whatever. Um, it, I, I think it's just treatment isn't being done as intended and that has patient factors that has dog fa cat factors and that has owner factors and sometimes just owners technical problems not understanding so i go on a mission to discuss with them their previous experiences of using your treatments what they found difficult um, I tease out really where the problems might lie and often it's the behavior of the dog where owners are reluctant really reluctant to carry out treatment is when they feel that the relationship between them and the pet is at stake so if they feel they're really either hurting the pet or the pets beginning to hide away from them you know uh, these sorts of situations, then you get a psychological factor here where they feel so bad about doing the treatment that that might override their rational acknowledgement of the necessity of it. And, you know, I think you and I probably can all relate to this, you know, whether it's children or animals, you just feel rubbish having to do this, even though you know it should be done. So we need to try and create situations to to um, to avoid that and, and, and rescue that relationship. And sometimes I think the solution is occasionally for the veterinary practice to take over the treatments for at least for a period of time until the worst of the infection is treated um, and and the owner and the dog or the cat are back in a situation where they can actually start working with each other and where some you know some training education and training of the owner with the dog and reward based training to, for the owner to, for the dog to accept this and and all of this can happen in a situation that isn't high stakes where the ear isn't that painful so it's about crisis solving this particular problem right now and then particularly in a dog that we know is likely to have recurrent infections, as soon as we're back on safe grounds with that year, we start working towards knowing that we will need to use some kind of topical treatment frequently, either for maintenance or, again, when, when problems relapse. Most people, of course, don't think about doing anything to the ears when the ears are fine, and every time they approach the ear is when they're not fine, and so you get into this terrible, vicious circle. So I think somebody in a practice who... Um, understands this, understands 
understands a bit about animal behavior and is good at working with clients for this should take some time to work this out. And you'll bind, I think you'll bind a client to your practice that way really, really well. The gratefulness of owners who you've helped deal with this situation knows no limits. Um, it's just that the vets are often too busy and that's fine. It doesn't have to be the vet. I think you need to find somebody who does that for you. That's great. Um, and maybe uh, to sort of, um, I, I suppose, like finish things off, as long as we haven't sort of missed anything, um, I suppose, when, when do you consider um, further diagnostics, such as sort of coming to coming to see you or further imaging? I know people are doing a, a bit more sort of CTs now for looking for middle ear disease or, or even thinking about um, uh, contemplating removing the external ear canal. Like when, when, do, you, when do you think that that's a, a appropriate to um, pursue those those sort of investigations? I think in any situation where you really fail to restore normality (laughs) to the ear structurally and in terms of infection over, see if you could define a time period here, over a period of time where um, you see... Uh, particularly when you you come across narrowing of the ear canal to the point where if you're honest to yourself you kind of really wonder how any anything can go in if you struggle to get an otoscope cone in very far or you know when you try and pass a swab you kind of have to you know push to get it in you have got soft tissue changes happening here that for whatever the initial reason was are now really limiting the ability to diagnose, to remove discharge for medication to have access and to really resolve this otitis. And in those sorts of situations, the risk of an extension of the process into the middle ear is high. Well, either you've got some kind of foreign body that's remained undetected. You may have a cerumenolith, so a a sort of a hard impaction of cerumen at the bottom of this, which prevents access of medication. Often that locks infection in deeper down. You get that swelling around it, etc. And, or of course, middle ear disease may have happened or be happening at the same time. I think that's really a point to step back and re, you know, resist the temptation to grab another bottle off the shelf, uh, and and really, you know, be honest and say, well, you know, just another set of ear drops isn't going to cut it. So we need to do something about those soft tissue changes and investigate further what's going on. I had a poodle on Monday who um, had that point. Um, and, and it was quite, that was remarkable because actually the clinical signs were really quite mild. Um, the ear canals were, and that's stenotic. Uh, but just something's been rumbling on there for months. It, quite a young dog. And, um, um, you know, people had performed, you know, ordinary handheld otoscopy. Um, and, well, you know, there's a bit of blood discharge there at the bottom. Doesn't look too dramatic. Not much in terms of pass. Cytology looks clear. Anyway, we had this dog anaesthetized and looked down with a, the powerful video otoscope. And um, and it had a, yeah, it had a serenous plug deep down in the horizontal canal. You removed that and behind it, massive stenosis of the remaining ear canal because we've had something locked in there for a long period of time. Um, the defect in the tympanic membrane, the CT scan then came through, middle ear disease bilaterally. This dog's now going for surgery. Um, that is a bit extreme in terms of sort of the disconnect here between the severity of the clinical signs and, and what we found, but, but that's the sort of situation when you're just not really permanently resolving what's going on. I think you need to step back and, and think again.
That's excellent. That's that's excellent. Um, and I suppose just anecdotally, sort of following up from that, the the patients that do have um, uh, ear canal removal or total ear canal ablation, um, do, does that often just just does that resolve all their their signs, or or normally they just have a continuation of their probably atopic derm, dermatitis, like generalised sort of skin disease? I suppose are they are they happy dogs and happy owners? Well, uh, not necessarily. If we think back to where we started this conversation, which is that a very la- very large number of dogs with um, chronic otitis, chronic recurrent otitis, belong into the allergic dermatitis otitis group, then that allergic um, uh, inflammation and, and, and consequences thereof often involve uh, a more extensive, extensive area of skin on the ears than just the actual ear canals. So if you had a lateral wall removal, for instance, uh, resection, then you're still left with the medial wall, <laughs> which is just as inflamed. Often the inflammation extends to the opening of the ear canal and up the pinna in some of the dogs. So you can remove the whole ear canal and you still end up with an inflamed pinna. In fact, we did a little in RP2, as a research project um, was run by some students on the uh, sort of the, the more medium to longer term outcome of dogs that had experienced a, a total ear canal ablation bullet osteotomy as a salvage procedure in our hospital. Uh, and I think about 24% of the ears that had, had this done continued to have itchy red pinna because, of course, the background of all of this, the remaining tissue that was still there, is that of an allergic um, skin disease. So I think it's really important that even when such an extensive salvage procedure is done, in those kinds of animals, it is quite clear to the owners that this may not be the complete end of all problems. Now, arguably, to deal with that kind of a remnant of a problem is a lot easier than the actual ear disease. But they can still be extremely frustrated and disappointed if they find themselves with, you know, pussy discharge in the pinnal fold at the area of the scar um, after surgery. So, you know, about 25% of those dogs still had those problems um, ongoingly. And, of course, um, most of them had problems in the contralateral ear anyway because it's a, it's a bilateral problem. Excellent. Um, I, I think, uh, unless we, you think we've missed uh, something out, I think I think we've uh, we've gone gone through most of. Uh, I really, could talk uh, ears for well, hours. I, I'm <laughs> I better I, stop now. <laughs> I find it I find it absolutely fascinating. But um, but uh, but maybe we'll wrap it up there. Maybe maybe we can encourage no. you to come back and talk about uh, maybe a slightly different topic uh, next time. That's fine. But thank you very much for for your time today, Anka. So we'll wrap it up there. And many thanks for your time for for, for listening. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your generic fruit based device. And that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast if you can leave us a, a, a review on apple Podcasts, five stars but other other stars are optional for other podcasts um and don't forget to tell your friends that friends others and um, we'll place any sort of show notes in the rvc pages so just type in rvc clinical podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch so you can either email me at dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye-bye <laughs>